And the rest of us, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. Today is Communion Sunday, uh, the last Sunday of the month. We've been celebrating one of the two ordinances on a regular basis, Communion or the Lord's Table. And today we have the privilege to do that as a fellow body. And the rest of you, if I just ask, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the last two verses before we celebrate Communion together. And we put a handout on the bulletin for you to give you a little synopsis of how we're going to conclude what Paul's argument has been. By the way, does anybody need a Bible this morning? Because we have Bibles available. If you can just raise your hand, we need one up here. Gene? Good. One right here. Uh, as always, the younger ones, fifth grade on down, that usually go to children's church, you're invited to follow along and look at the Bible and try to see what might apply to you or what you can understand. I, I interviewed, last time I did a communion message when all the kids were in here, I, I interviewed, or should I say interrogated a five-year-old to see what they heard or remembered about the message. And I was surprised about how much they... Uh, learned and were able to remember. That was impressive. So, but if you're a, a youth or a young person and you want to follow along and take notes uh, and see what God might have to say to you, uh, you're encouraged and invited to do that. If you do do notes, by the way, and you want to give them to me later today, not that that means anything, but if you want to give your notes to me, to Pastor Cliff, in the event that I might do something with it, who knows, you, you're allowed to do that. Just because I've given you Baskin-Robbins gift certificates every single month for five months in a row does not mean that I'm necessarily going to do it this week. Not necessarily, but probably, but necessarily. Is there an age limit? Yeah, it's high school. I'm down. I'm sorry, Nancy. But some of these kids, they take, I'm very encouraged by looking at how well they take notes and how they're listening and, and they're great too. So excited about that. But let's go ahead and look at the handout and the message of today. And like I've been saying for the last several weeks, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 really is a unit. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't use periods and uh, colons and paragraphs and those kind of things the way we do. So it was really just one running script. That's how they wrote 2,000 years ago. So the way you determine the context of something is by the content. And the content of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 tells us it's a unit and his main theme throughout is how Christ grows the church, particularly a local church, and how he does it using fellow believers in a local assembly. And he gets real specific. And then at the end of that <coughs> excuse me, discussion, Sorry, he even tells us how we know true growth is happening, how we can gauge, monitor, even diagnose true growth in a church because we've been saying you can have growth that isn't true or you can have growth that isn't healthy, right? You can have um, damaging growth, as a matter of fact. I think of the mold that I found at my house yesterday. Damaging growth, not good. So you need healthy growth. So at the end of this passage... Paul tells us how we can gauge and look for tangible signs of healthy growth in individual Christians and in a corporate local church. And I've come up with just five signs of how we can gauge healthy, true, spiritual growth in the local church. So let's go ahead and look at those. And I glean these out of the last two verses of this passage, verses 15 and 16. So we'll finish our study on church growth today. By the way, this is very helpful, very practical, very needed, because for, literally for the last 30 years, just a slew innumerable countless books have been written in the Christian world on church growth in the last 30 years and especially in the last 15 to 20 years. Everybody's trying to answer that question. How, what is the secret to church growth? How do we grow our church? How do we make it bigger? How do we make it better? And Paul was the first one to ever address that question specifically in detail and he did it here. Ephesians 4, <clears throat> 1 through 16. That's why this passage is so helpful and so practical for us today. But he continues on saying that God gave or Christ, because he rose from the dead, gave gifted men to the church to lay the foundation and start the church and also to equip all of the saints, every Christian, so that they will use their spiritual gift 
in the local church, which begins to produce growth corporately and individually. And as a result, there will be byproducts of true growth that will preserve unity in the local church, among other things. And he goes on, so let's pick up at verse 14 through 16. I'll just read that. As a result of true growth and following biblical principles of growth, as a result, doing what we're supposed to be doing, we are no longer to be children or immature, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up. Grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. There it is. Something causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That was a mouthful. Paul strung about eight prepositional phrases together. He would have got docked by his English teacher for all those run-on sentences. But he didn't care because he was giving spiritual truth. So it's kind of a a task to unfold and unravel the main point of what Paul's saying here. But the theme is, he's talking about how Christ grows the church and how God causes growth in the local body. Because that's the end of verse 16. The the main verb is in verse 16. Causes the growth. Causes is the main verb between 16. God causes growth, and he does it in a very specific way. We're going to look at some true growth that should be going on in our local church. So let's look at, you know, we can take, be very practical about this. Our church has been in existence six months, and we should take GBF and look at it, what's happened and transpired in the last six months, and then compare it with the grid of this week, these five signs of true growth, and also what we looked at last week, four signs of true spiritual growth, to make sure we're on target and we stay on target and keep our eye on the target as we move ahead. So let's go ahead and look at that. More signs of true, healthy spiritual growth uh, from these two verses. The first one, healthy church growth results from being truthful. Being truthful, absolutely vital and essential for a church to grow in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And that's the beginning of verse 15. It's a contrast. He says, but speaking the truth in love, but it's, an adver- it's a contrast. But in contrast to something, well, what was the contrast? Well, he just talked about in verse 14, false teachers. Scheming, deceitful people have actually snuck into the church. They look like Christians. They dress up in uh, Christian clothing. They use Christian vernacular. They quote from the Bible. They look like Christians. Many people, most people think they are Christians, but actually they're wolves. They're false teachers. He was talking about that in 14. And we need to be spiritually mature so we can discern and find out who these people are so we don't listen to them. They are dangerous. They hurt the church. They stunt growth in the church. Primarily they do it with false teaching. And the main byproduct of false teaching or false teachers is division in the church where the sheep literally are devouring one another. That's one of the greatest and true signs of a false teacher. So Paul says, in contrast to that, to this division, this false teaching, this dangerous scheming, verse 15, deceiver, a true Christian that is growing, a true church that is healthy, should be speaking the truth in love. So healthy church growth results from being truthful. Now, something very significant in that phrase right there, most English translations have the word speaking in there. It says, speaking the truth in love. But the word speaking literally is not in your Greek text. Literally, a literal translation would be being truthful. And so that's even more encompassing. It's more powerful than just saying speaking the truth in love. But the word being truthful 
that is used here. It's used four times in the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint. Every single time it's referring to a lifestyle. So it means being truthful not just in your words. It, it, it includes your words, but it also means in your lifestyle and how you live. Being a truthful person wherever you go. And those, that's what your church needs to be filled with. Truthful people, people who live the truth, people who speak the truth wherever they go, people who, who uh, cannot tolerate error wherever they go, people who live the truth wherever they go. That's what it's talking about. Being a, really, this means living a sincere life. Really, this means living a life of integrity and other specifics that it refers to. Uh, it means that you don't have any pretenses. You're not a pretender. The guy you are out in public pretty much represents who you are in your private life and in your home life and in your personal life. Very important. You live a truthful life wherever you go, in all contexts. You are sincere. You are transparent. You know, in the sad scenario about one of the most influential evangelical Christians in America, we were told by Tom, uh, Time Magazine, was Ted Haggard. And we found out, you know, and the media made a big deal about it and announced it to the whole world. I made it known because he had one of the largest evangelical churches in America that it was found out that he didn't have, that he had a secret life that was different than his public life. So he wasn't living the truth consistently in every area of his life. And that's, that's sad. And we are all vulnerable and susceptible to that kind of a thing. So that's why Paul exhorts us. We need to be truthful people in every area of our life. But the emphasis is probably on speech here because the emphasis of doing the opposite was on false teachers, and they teach false things, so as Christians we need to speak true things wherever we go. Which means if you're going to be committed to being a bold, courageous speaker and representative truth, wherever you go, be it in your job, in the street, in the public arena, wherever, you're probably, if you're a Christian and you're committed to truth and speaking truth, you're probably going to get some resistance. Sparks are probably going to fly, I would imagine. And if you're being consistent to truth... Probably, inevitably, eventually, you're probably going to ostracize somebody and maybe possibly hurt their feelings. You might even step on somebody's toes. That's probably what's going to happen if you are a person who is committed to living the truth, particularly with speaking the truth. Because a person who is speaking the truth is committed to not just, when they're out interacting with people and rubbing shoulders with people, they're not just going to zip their lips and be quiet and say nothing. With the onslaught of compromise and non-truth and lies being spewed everywhere we go. A Christian, Jesus said, you are my witnesses. That was a legal term in a court of law. What did a witness do on the witness stand? They spoke up and told the truth. And Jesus said, you are my witnesses. The emphasis being on, we will speak for him and we will speak what is true. And that's a daunting challenge in our day and age, isn't it? When pretty much everything we believe and hold dear is the very antithesis of what society holds dear, isn't it? And what we see on television and what the world believes, you're, you are swimming upstream if you are a Christian. You are going against the grain. And it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? So we need God's holy courage to be able to do that in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So we have to speak the truth. And then Paul says this very important. He qualifies that speaking the truth in love. That's how you do it, isn't it? And the emphasis there is your care for the other person. The goal is not to just be right. You're speaking the truth and love to somebody else who may disagree with you because you care for that person. You care for them first and foremost because they were created and made in the image of God. You care for that person because you know what? They are a candidate for salvation. 
And so that's the emphasis on love. You're speaking to this person the truth because you have a right motive and you want them to come to know the truth. Hence, doing it in love, not just hammering over them over the head or simply proving them wrong or just make it emphatically clear that you are right. That's not the goal. You speak the truth, you do it in love. And once again, Jesus Christ was the model of speaking the truth in love, wasn't he? Read the Gospels, be refreshed, see how he did it. People were offended, but the truth offended. Jesus spoke the truth in love and people were still offended. So even if you speak the truth faithfully and even if you do it in love consistently and faithfully, you are still going to have resistance. That's all there is to it. That's the fallout of being a Christian. You're in the minority. We are in the minority. I am in the minority. Nevertheless, we still need to be committed to this and, it's, and that's what God wants. Of Our church needs to be made up of individual Christians who are committed to living the truth and doing it in love. If you have that, then you have true spiritual growth. So Paul goes on, number two, another mark of true church growth. Number two, healthy church growth results from being Christocentric or Christ-centered. People say, well, we need to be theocentric or God-centered. Yeah, we do, but we need to be more than God-centered. Because most people in the world are God-centered. Most people in the world believe in God, don't they? If you were to ask the average man on the street or on the airplane, do you believe in God? They're probably going to say, yeah. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. So we need to be God-centered, but more specifically than that, we need to be Christ-centered. Paul says, he goes on, look at verse 15. But living the truth, or speaking the truth in love, we are in all specs into him, Christ. We need to grow the model of Christ, who is the head, head of the church, Paul has told us. Even Christ. So the emphasis, and then verse 16, from the whole body, he's still referring to Christ. Everything circles around Christ. We need to be Christocentric. Christ needs to be preeminent in our individual lives and here at GBF. It's not about us. It's not about GBF. It's about Christ, isn't it? That's what it needs to be. Christ is the epicenter of the circumference of Christian life. Think about that. He's the epicenter and the circumference of the Christian life. Everything that we think about should be filtered through how will this please Christ. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, those are all even the mundane things in life. Do it all to the glory of God, or do it all to the glory of Christ. Whether eating or drinking, we can do it in a way that pleases Christ, or thinks about Christ, or gives honor to Christ in all things. That is a church. We need to be Christocentric. Christ is at the center of all things and in every area of our life. And what Paul is also emphasizing here is that if Christ is at the center of every area of your life, then you have a balanced Christian life. A balanced Christian life, very important. In other words, you're not compartmentalizing your Christian life. You're not just religious and holy and spiritual when you show up here on Sunday or when you go to a Bible study. You're trying to please Christ wherever you go, at all times, in all situations. And we need to depend upon Him to pull it off, but that's the goal, that's the target, that's what God wants us to do. So God wants us to have a Christ-pleasing life, Christ-centered life in every area of our life, in our marriages, if we're single in all of our relationships, in our family, with our children, with our in-laws, with our neighbors, at home on your job, how you interact with your fellow employees, how you handle your money and finances. Do you honor your finance? Do you honor Christ by how you spend your money and the way you use your finances? How we spend our leisure time and our time of fun, whatever we're doing, is it pleasing Christ? Wherever we go, that's what he's talking about. We need to be if you do that, you're going to have a healthy, growing church. Christ is preeminent in all things. After all, it's his church, isn't it? He's the one that shed his blood for it. Paul goes on, mark number three of a healthy, growing church. A healthy church 
Healthy church growth results from considering as vital. Every member, every person at your church needs to be considered just as valuable as one of the others. This is one of our distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship that we really wanted to make a priority. That every person who walks through that door, all of a sudden I feel a compulsion, I feel a responsibility for that person, for knowing them, for where they're at spiritually, for their soul, if you will. That needs to be our attitude. Every person that walks through the door, regardless of their age, their walk of life, where they're coming from. And that's what Paul says. Notice his emphasis there. Um, I put notes there. That means everybody. That means every person. So he's being very specific. And so he's being redundant. He's being repetitive to emphasize his point. Every Christian matters. Every person matters. People, don't let people get lost in the crowd or fall through the cracks. So he says, but speaking the truth and living truth, Christ, who is the head of the church, and body, by what applies every Christian, every believer, according to the proper working of each part. We want true growth in the church. Everybody has to contribute. Hence, if you're a Christian and you're affiliating with GBF, you seriously need to pray through this thing and see how you can be used by God to help the church grow. Many of you already have made it six months. We didn't have many committed people already. Gifts. So that's what Paul's emphasizing here. Peter used it. Look at verse 16. Paul says that every Christian, every believer, from whom the whole body of Christ ever fitted, is referred to bones that were precision cut, sanded, and fitted. So it's a term of masonry, where you took a stone, a big block of stone, and then it was... Then they spent hours and hours on this thing, chiseling it down. They didn't have cement like we do today. So the key was, if you wanted to build a structure or a building made out of stone, then you spent most of your time on precision cutting, fine-tuning, sanding, and fitting on the stone. So there was individual attention given to it with great precision and detail. And that's what God is saying the church needs to do with every Christian. Great precision, attention, and detail to make sure that they are healthy, to make sure that they are getting fine-tuned and smoothed out so that when they are placed in the body, it is a perfect fit. Kind of like your Lego set. You know, they make Lego sets now with like 10,000 pieces. That would drive me insane. But I've, I've attempted to help my son build some of those Lego sets. And it's very frustrating when you get to a certain point and you don't have the right piece or it's been lost. And you're trying to stick the wrong piece in there. It won't fit. It has to be precision. It has to be the perfect piece to fit in to complete the entire model. And that's the picture or imagery that Paul is giving. Peter says the same thing. He says that every Christian is a living Do you know that? You're a rockhead. No, I'm not saying you're a rockhead. You are a living stone, a precious living stone. And Peter goes on and says, because you're a living stone, that God is trying to fit into the eternal building of the church that Christ is building over time. And every stone needs to fit perfectly. It needs to be fine-tuned and cared for. That's what the local church is supposed to be doing, giving attention with precision and detail to every Christian to help them grow. That's why Paul said in Colossians 1, his goal was that every Christian become thoroughly complete in Christ. 
So that's what God's trying to do with every person. Fine-tune them, and then he puts them... And by the way, God is the one who takes the stones and puts them in the body of Christ. It's a sovereign act of God. We don't do it. God does. He's in charge of supervising and building the church. Uh, Another word he uses in conjunction with that in verse 16, he says that uh, every Christian is being fitted. By the way, also the emphasis there is it's ongoing. It's a process. None of us are completed, are we? None of us is the perfect stone yet, are we? We are in process. That is the nature of the Christian life. It's fine-tuning that it's going to take our whole life till we die or until Jesus returns. So we need to be patient. But every Christian is being fitted, that's Christ's desire, to be fitting in the church perfectly. And then once it's there, Paul says, held together. Or literally, knitted together. Joined together. This refers to internal organs and the ligaments that hold bones together and and hold our uh, vital organs together. So once we get placed in the right spot, then God wants to keep us in the right spot so that we're functioning properly once we make it in the church. That's God's desire. So the terminology he's using is very specific here with the emphasis on the care to be given to individual Christians. Every single person, every believer matters. That's why this is, this is a mandate. If we need very specific, intentional, systematic precision growth for every Christian, then we have to have a vital discipleship ministry going on in our church. And discipleship means growth between individual believers, like one-on-one. So that has to be a backbone to our ministry, discipleship ministry, one-on-one, or in small groups, that's discipleship ministry. Because on a smaller level, when you have one-on-one relationships, you have higher accountability. You have a higher stimulus for growth. So that's also embedded in our philosophy as a church, is we want to be committed to discipleship ministry and thinking of ways to implement church. And I would just ask you, if you're, are you a Christian? If you say yes, then I would ask you, then you need to answer these two questions if you're a Christian. Who are you discipling? And whom is discipling you? You need to be in the chain there somewhere. You need to be on the spectrum. You need to be getting encouraged and discipled and held accountable by somebody that's a Christian, and you need to be doing the same thing to somebody else. So think about that and commit that to prayer. Absolutely vital. And if we're doing that, and this is a discipleship church, then we are going to fulfill this mandate. We're going to be giving attention to every person in our church. And as a result, God is going to bless us. We're going to continue to grow. Uh, Number four, Paul goes on. Another mark of healthy growth. Healthy church growth results when every believer serves to potential. Paul's been reiterating this all throughout this passage over and over and over again. If you're a Christian, God's given you a gift. If you have a gift, you need to be a good steward of God and use that gift. Serve in the local church. If you're a Christian and you're not using your gift and you're not serving on a regular basis, then you are either an immature Christian or an ignorant Christian or a disobedient Christian. There aren't a whole lot of other options. You need to be serving somewhere. God is and the but so Paul keeps so this is absolutely key to church growth. And that's why he keeps repeating this over and over again. It seems like it's redundant. Talking about this again, Pastor Cliff? Well, talking about it because Paul's bringing it up for about the fourth time. Every Christian needs to be serving, using their gifts, contributing to the growth of the body. Needs to be growth of the body. If you have an eight, a six-cylinder car, you need all six cylinders working, preferably, right, to get the full power. Or if you have an eight-cylinder car, you want all eight cylinders functioning? That's the way it is in the church. All cylinders need to be functioning. Every Christian needs to be served that is capable to serve. So the emphasis from Paul here, he says, terminology he uses, 
original phrases in verse 16. Body being held together by that which every joint supplies. Literally, every Christian is supplying something, contributing something. According to the proper working of each individual part, they're serving according to their potential that they can by virtue of the gift that God has given them. So every Christian needs to meet their quota or their potential as they've been empowered by God. And if everybody is doing that faithfully, then this causes growth in the body. That's what Paul says. And the church will be built as a result. Very important. So the emphasis here, every Christian serving, every Christian producing, every Christian has a sign of output that they're contributing in service to the church, not just to the church, but primarily to the Lord. Did you know that? As you're using your gift in the local church, first and foremost, you're serving who? You're not serving man. You are serving the Lord, aren't you? You are serving Him. You're accountable to Him. You please Him. He's the one who will reward you. That's great motivation. We serve Him first and foremost. Boy, if you had a church, and that's what I look for in a healthy church, uh, in light of this passage, it's not, you don't, diagnose and analyze a church to see if it's healthy. Who's your pastor? Because that's one guy, right? So if you have a church of 100 or 10, you don't just say, who's your pastor? And then the answer to that is supposedly supposed to answer the question whether you have a health or not. The question should be, who are your people? What is your congregation like? And if the answer is, actually, we've got a church of 500 faithful, serving, obedient Christians giving their lives in service to the Lord. You know what? That's a healthy church. That's awesome. Paul goes on. Last principle of healthy growth, number five. Paul says, healthy church growth thrives in an environment of love. In verse every joint which causes the growth of the body of Christ for the building in love. In love. He started out this passage. Notice at the beginning of verse 15. Speak the truth in love. And he ends it with in love. So those are kind of the brackets, if you will, of everything he's saying here. Everything we're doing to be obedient to God, to try to build the church, to encourage saints to serve, needs to be done in the context of love, doesn't it? And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. Remember what Paul said? You can be very active. You can give your body to the flames, give to the poor, but if you do it with the wrong motive, if you don't do it with love, you are Nothing. You are a zero. It accomplishes nothing. God isn't just looking for a flurry of activity. First and foremost, it starts with the right motive, the right attitude, the right context. And in the Christian church, it should be love, right? Fighting and backbiting and competition and gossip and undermining. That's not love. God isn't going to bless that. What is love? Like I said, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what true love is. 16 is probably the best example concisely of what love is. Just a few things about what true biblical love is. First and foremost, it's not a feeling or an emotion, is it? Not primarily. First and foremost, biblical love is an action, isn't it? it is a, it's a verb. Love does things. And according to John 3.16, love gives. Love is giving. That's true love. God so loved the world that He gave. And what did He give? He gave the most. He gave sacrificially. He gave to meet the needs of others. He gave selflessly. So love is other-oriented. It is sacrificial. It is an action. It is continual. It is a verb. It is ongoing. It's looking for the best interests of other people. It is not looking itself. That's love. That is biblical love, and that needs to be our attitude 
as we serve in the local church, using our gifts, getting our eyes off of ourselves, but in love, getting our eyes on other people, on fellow saints, trying to recognize needs. You know, if you're looking at yourself, you can't see the needs of other people and meet their needs, can you? But if you're other-oriented and looking to meet needs of other people, which is love, you can fulfill that mandate of love. And I, I have been, just so you know, as a church family, I have been incredibly blessed the last two weeks. And I shared this with the advisory councils we were praying this morning, blessed in a real special way to see saints at GBF looking around in love and spotting specific needs among the body and then zeroing in and meeting those needs by giving, by giving with their time, by giving in service, by giving monetarily to people who are in need. It has been awesome, totally encouraging. And I've seen it in really specific ways. And I thank God uh, that God has put saints in our church who live that way with an attitude of love. Like I said, love does what? Love gives. Love is not love until you can see it, whatever it is, whether it's an action, a word, or something tangible that's given. And so that has been, that has been awesome. So my prayer is that God is going to continue us stay on target as we remember what true growth is all about and that we serve Him. We're Christ-centered and we want to be used by Him to the full. You know what? As a result, in six months from now, we can celebrate and have our annual congregation meeting and we'll fly the highness back. And Why are you laughing? We'll fly the highness back and we'll just talk about all the wonderful, awesome things that God has done in the past year and even the trials that have come up that God saw us through because that's also awesome and exciting and evidence of His providential hand. And we'll also make sure that we're still on track pursuing true growth God's way. So let's go ahead and Commit our time to the Lord and thank Him for His Word and important reminders that we need to hear before we go to the Lord's table. Father, we thank You for today, a new day, the Lord's day, to worship You, to learn from You. Thank You for every person that You brought here today. God, I pray that You can encourage every single person in a very specific way today before they leave, that You'd lift the burden from their hearts, answer a prayer, lift up their spirit. Draw them closer to you. Something, Lord, to testify that you are a real living God. God, thank you for your word. Continue to be our teacher through your Holy Spirit. As we search your word together, and may your hand of blessing continue to be on our church so that we grow in a healthy manner after your model. We thank you for all these things, and we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.